that's a beautiful tune. By the way, the, the first song, the first hymn that we had this morning, reminded me of the Williams family. Yeah, remember the Williams family that came here? Well, that's one that they did. And I don't think I've heard it since I heard them doing it. I don't know if we're ever going to be able to get them back uh, here or not. They live up in Oregon, too. But I always enjoyed uh, their company, and we spent a lot of time with them. And they had, uh, they had a lot of good thoughts. I'm going to put my glasses on because I'm going to get serious here. Um, these pages that Kathy handed out are simply the issue of the scriptures that I use. I can't believe there's that many scriptures in this. Typically, I don't use that many, but I want to talk about something that's quite um, important to me because it's a condition that I find a lot of folks in, uh, and it's not a good one. I call it a sad condition, but no foundation to one's faith is a sad condition. I have... I have an account of someone that suffered such a thing as we're just talking about. Maybe some of you may remember the name, but th this is a name that um, was quite well known in the late 30s, uh, 1930s, 40s, and later. But his name was Charles Templeton. And he was uh, kind of like a traveling preacher in those days. Uh, quite a successful one. Had big revivals and things of that sort. He went around the United States and even around in Europe and other places. But he traveled uh, as an evangelist. Um, and he won many over to the idea that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and the source of salvation. Um, his message was one of salvation by faith only, and it was dictated by the creeds of men. He was a Calvinistic preacher. Uh, he did not, certainly did not present the gospel in the way I think it should be, but he was very convincing as to the narrative concerning Jesus Christ as God's Son and the Savior. And that was his job. And that's what he did. But in the 1940s, I think towards the end of World War II, um, Charles Templeton visited some soldiers and things um, that had been injured and in the war and things of this sort. And it, it left, it scarred him deeply. So somewhere along the way, Mr. Templeton lost his confidence in the Bible and in God. And it resulted in him actually losing his faith, leaving his ministry. And during the last years of his ministry, um, as he traveled, a young preacher named Billy Graham traveled with him. So this is the, the group that he traveled in. Billy Graham was a very young man at this time. Now, Mr. Templeton was desperate for a remedy to his problem, his weak faith. And he knew it. He knew he had a problem. 
Um, so he decided to return to a seminary uh, to find the answers. And unfortunately, this experience only cemented his septic thinking because, you see, the seminary and Charles Templeton was, they were both infected by a great deadly virus known as Calvinism. In other words, a theology within Christianity that's, I, I consider it a deadly virus. It's very harmful. And he became, um, as a matter of fact, he was affected by what was known in those days as higher criticism uh, within the seminary, they, where they were studying the Bible in light of men's logic and science, things of that sort. So the sad results of Mr. Templeton's quest for understanding was that he emerged from the seminary some years later, a well-educated, well-spoken, professing agnostic. And he came, he went out on his own circuit at this time with an argument, and he argued most passionately for his position that was a position of faithful, faithlessness and veered into apostasy itself if that was the case for him. You know, to be an apostic, to be dealing in apostasy, one has to be a Christian to start with. I don't know if Mr. Templeton ever was really a part of the body of Christ, but he certainly was uh, one that was exposed to it. But his, his, what he had been exposed to in his life had not been the kind of teaching that he really needed, nor anybody needs. But here's the thing about what he did, and this is important. He expounded two points of argument, of contention. He was contending against God and presenting it to people as, this is important. And it concerned God and the scriptures. He had two questions. I think we find them on our sheets here. Why is Jesus of Nazareth the only way to God the Father? Have you ever heard anybody say that? Why is it just, is it just Jesus or is there other ways to God? Is there other ways to please God? Is there another avenue? That was his first question. And the second question actually comes from the first thought, but how can a God of love permit this world to continue in such suffering and pain? You see, this is what motivated Mr. Templeton. He had seen the inhumanity of man after World War II and what had occurred, what he had heard, read, and seen with his own eyes the condition of men and women after that war, and he was horrified by it. In the understanding of men, I think, these two points uh, seem to be very compelling. A very compelling argument towards, uh, towards an understanding. And they seem to be, show a very inconsistent idea of scripture. In other words, 
what is God really this way? What is the truth? I want you to remember, though, this thinking didn't originate with Charles Templeton. This thinking has been all the way back in mankind concerning their God. All the way back. This is the question. Did God really mean what he said? Remember Adam and Eve? They had to answer that question too, didn't they? Did God really mean it? Well, he does mean it. Please remember that Jesus rebuked the teachers of the law in his day. It was the Sadducees, I believe. And uh, here in Matthew 22, um, I'll just read verse 29. Uh, you can read the whole scripture if you want, but for time's sake. Uh, Jesus is in talking to the Sadducees, but he says this, And Jesus answered them, saying to them, You go astray, or you are in error, not knowing the writings, nor the power of God. You see, that's what Jesus said to the teachers of the law in that day. That they do err. They go astray. Because they do not know the, the word of God, the writings, which was the Old Testament in that day, nor the power of God. They did not respect God for who he was. Now let me tell you something about this scripture and about some of the words here. The Greek definition for the word error here that's translated error or astray in this passage is, is not just to be wrong about something or ignorant about something, make a mistake about something. No, this word in Greek means to lead people astray by your teachings. Isn't that what they were doing? Isn't that what the leaders of the Jews were doing, leading their people astray? It was. Do you think there's those that preach Christ in this world of hundreds of centuries or centuries back that have led people astray in their teachings? They have. Much the case of Mr. Templeton himself. Not only had he led people astray, but he had been led astray himself. And you know, he was searching for the answer. He really was. He wanted to know. I know from the things he wrote otherwise, he wanted to restore the truth and the faith back to himself. But he just couldn't do it. He had been so scarred and so bothered by what he saw in the world that he just couldn't put the things together. It's too bad that his seminary wasn't teaching the things they should have, that he could have defended his faith through God's word. But unfortunately, our culture and the people that name Jesus as Lord in many places fall into this sort of error. We are just as susceptible to false doctrine today as ever. Even with the true light of the completed oracles of the Bible, the, the word of God. We have it. Uh, a man that I respect a lot that wrote a book called The Parousia put in, uh, one of his comments was, the key 
has always been on the hook on the doorpost to open the door. But men have tried to pick the lock, force the door, and get in some other way. Instead of using the key to unlock the door and go through. You see, this is how people are. This is how we are. And this man was making an observation. Now, what's, what's the key? Well, the key to this man was the scriptures. Go to the scriptures, search the language, and make sure you know what it's saying. See, that's the key that unlocks the door. If you don't do that, the door remains locked. And that is a sad condition. Now, it's been my experience that, and, and yours too, I imagine, that these two points by, made by Mr. Templeton are very common complaints made by those that are rejecting the gospel message of Christ or religion in general. But let me say this to you today. It is necessary that we have a useful response to those in this condition. Now, I said necessary. I didn't say it'd be nice if we had a way to help them. I said, as a Christian, it is necessary for us. It is on our shoulders. 1 Peter 3, 15. The apostle says, And the Lord God sanctified, sanctify in your hearts, and be ready always for defense to everyone who is asking of you an account concerning the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That's how you're supposed to do it, in meekness and fear. You are to be ready. So those two questions, they deserve to have an answer. They deserve to be answered. Someone answered my questions. Someone helped me with my questions. Good men and women in, in faith responded to my questions and to your questions. And we are to do the same thing for anyone that asks us. You know, God is not offended by a reasonable question. Some people think you don't question things. No. You do question things. You question in your mind. You might not say it verbally, but aren't you questioning? Yes, you are. Reading resistantly. Yeah. We need to read resistantly the things of God. So we know. He is not offended by a question, nor should we be offended by any question such as that. Isaiah 1.18. There's another place that says this, but... Uh, I forgot where it was, but in Isaiah 118, the prophet <clears throat> speaking for God says, Come, I pray you, and we reason, saith Jehovah. If your sins are as scarlet as snow, they shall be white. If they are as red as crimson as wool, they shall be. God says to man, Come, let us reason together. Now, that's benevolent. That's benevolent. And I, I must say, 
Isn't that the same attitude that we should have towards people with these questions? I think it is. I don't see any way we get up on a high horse because someone has said they just don't believe there's a God. It doesn't, that doesn't hurt me. It hurts them. But we need an answer. We need a way to help. Question number one, why is God, or why is Jesus of Nazareth the only way to God the Father? Now I say Jesus of Nazareth because <clears throat> when I'm asking people to confess Christ before their baptism or, or uh, and they come and confess and come down and want to become a Christian, I say Jesus of Nazareth because I want everyone to know and I want them to know that we're talking about the one that we read about in the scriptures. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary, the son of God. The Bible teaches he is the only way to God. Jesus said it. His father said it. The apostles said it. The church says it, or should say it. We're not saying it very loud anymore, but we should be saying it. Now the simple answer to that question is because God has said so. But you know, this is not going to be useful to those that are not informed concerning scripture. That's just, that just cements the issue in their mind that you're just a hard-headed Bible thumper and you're not, you're not interested in what their problems are. It's true, but yet it's not true if you don't believe it. Deuteronomy uh, 18. This is God speaking to Moses. And it's recorded here in Deuteronomy. God is speaking to Moses and he says, A prophet I raise up to them out of the midst of their brethren. By the way, the them there is the Jewish people. Like to thee. He's going to be like Moses. And I have given my words in his mouth. And he shall, and he has spoken unto them all that which I command him. And it hath been the man who does not hearken unto my words which he does speak in my name, I require it of him. By the way, that last phrase is a frightening phrase. That means to God you have separated. He's talking about Jesus here. Jesus of Nazareth. Um, there's, there's no question about that. The Messiah. That's the the one like Moses, only he's, he's more than Moses. He's more than Abraham. He's more than the temple. He's the son of God. Jesus of Nazareth is that man. He spoke the words of his father. He said it over and over again. These are not my words alone, but those that I've heard from my father, I speak to you. The God of heaven. And we find him saying that throughout the gospel accounts. The apostle of the Lord have established the fact that he is the only way. In Acts uh, 4, uh, Peter and John were saying this. 
I'll skip to verse 11. This is the stone that you set at naught. The builders that became head of the corner. And there is not salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven that hath been given among men in which it behoove us to be saved. Do you believe that was the apostles' teaching? Is that what the apostles said? Yes, it is. That's what they taught. And I think from what we've heard of Brother David here in the last few months, uh, he's very convinced the apostles' teaching is something we need to be very aware of. Our fellowship is with the apostles, and then our fellowship becomes in Christ and in the Father. Why? Because that's the will of the Lord. <clears throat> there is no other name. God has said it from heaven. The apostles say it. The evangelists preach it. And the church stands on it. The evidence is there. If the Bible be true, and it is, and it's been, it's been tried to be dis, uh, proven untrue many, many times. By the way, Jesus said it himself. John 14, 6. Jesus saith to him, one of the apostles, I think it might have been Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one doth come unto the Father if not through me. I think Jesus is pretty pretty clear here, isn't he? I heard on the radio a number of years ago the head of uh, one of the biggest denominations in America was asked, is there anything in the Bible that you wish wasn't there? And do you know what verse he, he quoted? The one I just read. The one I just read. Now who is it that he's representing in this world. He's supposed to be a Christian preacher, a theologian, a leader of, of the church, of a church. And yet that verse is offensive to him. You know why? Because he's compromised this thought in his life verbally to other people. He's given way, given way, given way. He thinks this is the loving way to deny Christ to make things better for people. That's not going to help people, friends. Oh, I was shocked when I heard it. But I have to understand, these things happen. The Lord Jesus has declared it, as you just heard. The apostles and the evangelists declare it to the world. The Church of Christ declares it. Every time they assemble, every time they come around the table of remembrance, we're remembering one, the only one, that was, that was holy and pure enough, righteous enough, and godly enough to die for our sins. His blood was holy to save us and remove the sins that we have committed. That's why He is the sufficient Savior. He is the sinless Savior. 
He is the Lamb of God, worthy of all praise and worship, as it says in Revelation chapter 5. He is the Son of God, and brethren, our boasting is in Him, not in ourselves, not in our group, not even in each other. It is, it is boasting of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is he the only way? We could spend hours or maybe a lifetime on this. Because he is alone, because he alone is worthy and acceptable by his blood, as we have, as we have read. And, and as we read clearly in Hebrews 1, verse 3. I'll let you uh, read that. But he has sat down at the right hand of God after being the appropriation for the sins of man. And that's his position right now. And that's where he's at. Is God the author of wickedness? No. That's why question number two needs to be answered. And we can do it quickly. We're running quickly running out of time. How can a God of love permit this world to continue in such suffering and pain. Is the world in suffering and pain? It is. We don't have to go, we can go out of our door at home and walk down the street and we can find it. We might find suffering and pain in our own home. The weakness of our, our bodies, the weakness of our family and friends, we have weakness, weakness, weakness. But you know, you can have a lot of weakness, but if you've got a real faith and a real hope, that weakness is secondary. Third area, even. It, it is true that God is not the author of wickedness or bad behavior. I think it's, that's the product of man and his free will. But you see, to the Calvinists, to Mr. Templeton, to the seminary professors, to the Calvinists wherever they may, may be and have been for the last few hundred years, these things are not our fault. Because you see, we were born to be a bad person or born to be saved and, or born to be lost. We don't find that in the scriptures. We find just the opposite. And yet that's what they teach. If that's what you believe, when you see suffering and pain in the world you live in, who are you going to blame? I think you'd have a legitimate complaint against God, wouldn't you? You see, it's what they, they believe is what's causing them to be so confused. Logically, this doesn't make sense. I'm sure that all of us here understand what murder is, rape and evilness, bad behavior. Does that make us guilty of those crimes? We know all about them. We know more than we want to know about them. But we are not guilty for those crimes how can we lay this at the feet of our Creator? You know, the theme of the Bible is that man needs a Savior. 
And only Jesus of Nazareth is able for that. But that's why we come to this question about God. We're not guilty of, of these things, nor is God guilty of it. The reason this question is asked is because of a lack of foundation in the lives of men and women. Why doesn't God do something about this? You know, when there's a, a terrible tragedy in the world, many times we'll hear on the news media uh, when they're trying to fix the problem or help people, someone will come up with the thing, where's the church in all this? Now they finally think about the church when they have a physical, monetary, or some other kind of need instead of thinking of the church first. And I don't know what church they're talking about. Uh, it would depend who it is that said it, I suppose. The thing is, the world does not know the nature of God, nor the nature of man. The Bible teaches us uh, this. The Bible teaches us what the nature of God is, and the nature of man, and the nature of our Lord. And But that's not what Mr. Templeton learned in seminary. You see, th those things were avoided. Mr. Templeton was a product of Calvinistic preachers, preachers and churches, and they told him that every move that occurs is, is orchestrated and planned by God himself. So, he is responsible for all pain and suffering. He's either responsible or he just doesn't care. That's the thought. But is it true? It's not true. And I preached here uh, a couple a month or so ago concerning Genesis 4, where God is speaking to Cain. Remember that? And God says to Cain, if thou dost well, shall it not be lifted up? And that is, Cain, God says to Cain, if you would have brought your sacrifice to me in a holy uh, way, in a way that tells me you love me, I would be happy with you. And he told Cain that sin croucheth out to his door and wants him. And unto thee shall be its desire, but do thou rule over it. You see what God's saying here? And that he's not only saying it to Cain, it's the first human, it's the first man he said that to. I don't know if he said it to Adam or not. It's not recorded. God's telling man that you have a choice to make in your life. You have a choice. Will you do the right thing, the thing pleasing to God, or will you do the thing, something else, pleasing to you or maybe evil for some reason that I, I wouldn't know about? The choice was his. God said sin is crouching at your door and it's desirous for you. That's all of us. That's what, can, that's what we can do. We can go there. We can open that door. We don't even need a key for that. We just kick it open. But he said, if you do the right thing, you'll be pleasing to me. 
Cain didn't do the right thing. He was still mad about his brother and he killed him. Yeah, he had a choice. God spoke to him and gave him the choice and that wasn't enough. Why do we live in a world of sin and, and, and suffering? We have the ability to do this all on our own. The greatest blessing we have is free will. We can choose to love God, reject God, or just ignore God. We can do any of these things. But we need to think about the consequences. I want to tell you something else. Mankind has the, the reason, uh, well, he has a good reason, but he also has an ability to not sin and to, and to do evil things. But he must want to do what is right. So, if mankind is so repulsed by suffering and pain, they need to cease their own sinning, their own bad behavior. They are causing the suffering and pain. Do you think that mankind wants to hear that they're responsible for wars and mistreatment, sinful evil, things that we hear about and see every day? No. We don't want to own up to it. And yet that's the answer to Mr. Templeton's question. Go to the mirror and look. What are you doing? What's your neighbor doing? I think we need to stop blaming God for our lack of love in this world. We are the masters of our own domain and the condition of our world is due to our own lack of oversight and care. That's my conclusion. Maybe it's not yours. That's my experience in the world and I've been here for a while. I've been through growing up, I've been through war, I've been through living, struggling, loving. I've been through it. And that's my conclusion. The sad story is that Mr. Templeton, Charles Templeton, never did overcome these two questions. In 1996 he wrote another book, Farewell to God. He finally given up. He never got the answer. He was never satisfied. I don't know what he did about it, but on June 7th of 2001, he died. And as he said, he was unhappy with God. I, I'm sure he was. But I don't want people to be unhappy with God. I want people to be happy with God. That's all he wants. This is what I, one thing I said uh, years ago that uh, I agree with whoever said it, that God is not angry with us. He's not angry with the world. If you don't believe it, read his book. You've never known anyone that has turned around and helped those that, that are not only helpless, but working against him that criticize him and hate him and over and over she helps and helps and helps. That's my invitation today. Let's get on the side of one that helps. Maybe you can answer these questions for somebody else next time it comes around. 
uh, the, these scriptures that I give you are great evidence of, as to how we can do it. We need to do it. Because if we really love, if we really love, and in any way close the way that Jesus of Nazareth loved, then we'll, we'll be able to do this for somebody else. There isn't a man or woman born in this world that God doesn't want to be successful and to come and live with him forever. I don't care who they are, where they are, or what their name is. That's his idea. But it's our decision as to what we do. With that, I will conclude my remarks.